0: Hey, welcome back to Mining Stock Daily. It's Friday. We've got an in-depth CEO interview today, with my conversation with Ian Ball from Abitibi Royalties. Great conversation, young, uh, young CEO in the royalty space with vast experience from Gold Corp and McEwen Mining. It's a really exciting conversation to hear his approach to being a young CEO in this industry. Before we run that interview, special thank you to our sponsors. That's Integra Resources, Western Copper and Gold, Minera Alamos, and Brixton Metals. We appreciate all of your support and everything you do for this show. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks again. Quick reminder to catch Mickey Fulp and I, that's the mercenary and geologist, and I discuss the weekly recap of the metals, money, and markets every Friday afternoon post market close. You can find that at Kitco.com. So later today, if you, this is or throughout the weekend, be sure to tune into Kitco.com to catch that recap with Mickey and myself. So without further ado, let's bust into the conversation with Ian Ball from Abitibi Royalties and we will see you at the end. Thanks again for listening. and welcome to Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall reporting from the PDAG Conference here in Toronto. Sitting with me is the CEO and President of Abitibi Royalty, Ian Ball. Ian, thank you for joining us and our listeners today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Abitibi Royalty is traded on the TSX Venture with the symbol RZZ, and recently also on the NASDAQ International with the symbol ATBYF, and we're going to be asking Ian a little bit about joining the NASDAQ. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Abitibi, the flagship royalty in the portfolio is a 3% net smelter return royalty on the eastern portion of the Canadian Malarctic Mine, which is owned and operated by Agnico Eagle and Yamana Gold. Uh, Ian, my first question for you, uh, you have an extensive history in the mining business with Gold Corp and McEwen Mining. Why have you transitioned your career into managing a royalty company?
1: Well that's a very good question. Um, I spent a lot of my time prior to joining Abitibi either on exploration or in operations and I remember one day in particular I was in one of the open pits and calculating just the cost of getting the rock out of the ground versus the revenue we were getting in. And I would go through those expense reports in pretty, big de- uh, in pretty large detail and thinking to myself, there has to be an easier way than this. We're moving, we were moving 40,000 tons a day out of this open pit, and we weren't really making that much money. And so I thought, okay, there has to be a better model. And my, my objective was always to build what I would believe would be the best gold company in the world. And I define best by share performance and, and not size. Um, and so I thought, okay, I was 32 years old. I was president of McEwan Mining I was not CEO. Um, so I thought, well, maybe now is the time to, to step into, um, you know, I'm the next, part of my career, and I've always really admired Berkshire Hathaway in terms of how they're run. I said, well, can I bring lessons that I've learned from reading about Berkshire into the mining sector? I had identified Abitibi as the platform that I thought I could use based on how they were structured, and I called the CEO, uh, who was Glenn Mullen, who's also the president of the PDAC, and I said, well, you ever think about becoming chairman and me becoming CEO? And he thought about it, and he thought we had complementary. skills skill sets and that's how we, we started on Abitibi.
0: Yeah. So what were some of your, uh, who were some of your mentors and people you really trusted when you were considering making this transition other than, other than Mr. Bolin?
1: Uh, well, I would say, obviously, Rob McEwen. Uh, after I had left McEwen Mining, he invested $2 million into Abitibi, and then he then subsequently doubled his investment by putting another $2.3 million. So how often do you see somebody leave a company, and then that same person who you just told you were leaving invest, you know, that sum of money? It doesn't happen very often. So Rob, without a doubt, has been the, the largest influence in terms of how I view the mining sector. And I spent probably 13 years with him. Almost every day, and you almost become, uh, you know, your your thinking becomes very much aligned after hearing what what he had had to say. Uh, But there's also another individual who, although not in the mining sector, actually got me interested in mining as a career path. Uh, And he always would say to me that it's no longer okay to be good, you have to be you have to be the best, you have to be excellent at what you're doing and uh, something I always try to strive for um, is that what we're doing we don't want to be the average Uh, we want to be the best and as I mentioned the best for me is the best share performance.
0: Sure, sure. Um, It almost seems like you're a really fairly young guy compared to many CEOs in this industry on whatever whatever side of the uh, game you play so it almost seems like you've been on like an accelerator model right. up into your management. Place. So what were some of the hard lessons you really had to learn when you took that jump?
1: Taking CEO? Um, well, I'd say there's actually two. So I learned some lessons when I became president of McKeown Mining because we had 1,700 employees. So managing that amount of people, what I realized was... And I don't think I learned the lesson very well at the time, but you have to learn to delegate and you have to hire exceptionally well. Um, You can't just do everything on your own anymore because that's not possible. Um, So I think I learned that, but also when you become CEO, you're the last in line. So when investors are unhappy or when a major decision is made, investors are going to ask you what was the reason, if they don't like it, they're going to ask you what the rationale was. And so I would never really experienced that type of harsh criticism before because I always had Rob McEwen protecting me. Uh, but I think you know, stepping in, knowing that you know, as a VP, it's very easy, well, let's go take over company ABC. But as a CEO, you're the one who has to live with that um, so I think that was one, um, and I would say obviously there's a lot of more dynamics being the CEO in terms of setting strategy, uh, communication with your various stakeholders, whether it's investors, community, major, uh, you know, different funds, the government, uh, your own board of directors, so that's a different skill set that you have to drive as your CEO. Okay.
0: As an investment, royalties have become increasingly popular due to their, you know, de-risk nature in this sector. How does Abitibi distinguish itself amongst other royalty companies right. in this current market?
1: Well and the thing is, you know, you think of royalty companies, they've really basically have morphed into banks. You know, they're they're financing construction, they're providing loans, you know, their streams. Uh, and really, I don't have any desire to get into that business. We don't feel we have a competitive advantage there because you know, the likes of Franco have better expertise than us around the world. They have more capital. They have a lower cost of capital. So how, you know, that old saying, if I beat Franco in an auction process, I probably lost because I overpaid. Uh, so we don't really want to focus there. We, we figure our, our key advantage is understanding the geology and the Abitibi. We understand the properties, we know the operators, we know how long it takes to permit different properties towards production, Uh, we know the expiration potential. So if somebody comes to us with a proposition in the Abitibi, we can give you a yes or no answer in one to two days. Versus our larger peers, although the great is what they are, don't have that same narrow focus that we do. Second is that we refuse to issue shares. So we have the lowest share count of any mining company in the world. We have 12 and a half million shares outstanding and that's taking a page out of Berkshire Hathaway's model. Also like Berkshire we cancel stock options so nobody gets stock options in the company. So you can get a salary and you can invest it in the market like every other investor and we buy back our shares. So we're probably one of the handful of mining companies that actually buys back their, their shares as well and we say that our growth has to come from cash flow and cash on hand. You cannot issue shares for the sake of growth because usually when you issue shares, you're actually selling a part of your company. People don't realize that. So if you issue 20% of your stock for an asset, you've actually just given 20% of your current asset to strangers. And so we say that any acquisition has to be done through cash.
0: So what about, you know, people who, companies that offer option packages to their employees or consultants, they say, well, it's an incentive for them. So you disagree with that. I do. Yeah, why why is that? What's an example of why? Well, I
1: would say in most cases, there are very few individuals that will actually influence the share price of a company. So, he will give you an example. So let's say the gold price goes up to $2,000 an ounce and there's a mine manager. Let's say he works at Barrick. He's in Peru. The mine missed every single milestone, but because the gold price went to $2,000 an ounce, he's going to benefit, even though he didn't meet any objective. So I think when it comes, except for a handful of people, maybe the board, the top-level officers, when you get below that, I think you should get a cash bonus, and that person can then decide if they want to invest in the company or, or not.
0: So do you provide dates on your calendar when free trading is available within your company or is it yes. just open? Okay. I'd
1: you know, say as a royalty company usually you're not in possession of any material information because you only get it when the operators release it. So we as soon as we get it we try to do the turnaround as fast as possible so for the most part we don't find ourselves in very many blackout periods.
0: Okay. So do you think you said 12 million shares outstanding? Yeah, right? so, 12 and a half. 12 and a half. <laughs> so is there any room ever for dilution under your belt? Do you think? No. You're going to it stick. It had there? to be
1: the deal of the century for us to issue a share. So it, it, you'd have to get back a lot more value than you're giving up. And so I think it would be very hard pressed. If you look at most of these most of the mining companies, look at some of the seniors. They have a billion shares outstanding. They've been around for 25, 30, 40 years. Brookshire Hathaway has 730,000 shares outstanding. One trades at three, $4 a share, one trades at $300,000 a share. I'm not saying mining is as good as insurance, but something is to be said about when you issue equity, typically you've cost your shareholders money.
0: So this, I want to stick with the uh, financial aspect of the company, because you recently started trading on the U.S. on right. the NASDAQ, and has that changed the company's liquidity since the launch, even with the tight share structure? Or what, we, what?
1: When we see more volume in the United States, it's still pretty small. Um, our, most of our volume is still in Canada. You know, we probably trade around, right now, five, 6,000 shares a day. And people say, well, that's not very good, but when you look at dollar value, we trade more dollar value than most juniors at this conference. We're trading $60,000, $70,000 of, of shares a day, which is more than 90% of the companies on the trading on at the conference. People only look at volume in terms of shares. They don't look at volume in terms of dollar amount.
0: What was that experience like going to New York and launching on the NASDAQ and there's a little bit of a media blitz? I mean.
1: Oh, it was fun. It was, it, was, it was a pretty good day. We flew in with a number of our largest investors. Um, so we went down with them. Uh, Nasdaq does a, a great job, you know, arranging whether it's photos or media for you. Um, so that was really fun, and uh, yeah, just kind of, you know, then uh, but allowing our uh, going back to try and treat your shareholders fair. I don't know too many mining companies that would invite their ten largest shareholders to ring the closing bell. Uh, so, but uh, it was a, it was a great experience. Yeah.
0: I, I did want to ask you a little bit about the generational aspect in this industry. Like, do you ever think about who is going to be the next generation of investors in this industry? You yeah, know, it's pretty people,
1: scary when you walk into PDA because there's very
0: there's very few of our age.
1: Right, there's hardly nobody below forty.
0: Right. So, what are your thoughts on what do we need to do, or how do we work on to? making this industry attractive again for those younger investors. I do think, I know everyone talks about the
1: technological steps we're making in this industry. On the innovation side? Yeah, they seem pretty minor to me. Um, I I don't see us making any big leaps or bounds in our technological process. It seems to be pretty, pretty small. Uh, I 'm not saying we're not making some strides, but in terms of groundbreaking technologies that are changing the economics of the industry, you need to make you need to make the mines more profitable uh, and I think that will attract the investors back to the to the sector uh, but in terms of bringing back like the younger te- you have to I think as a mining industry, we have to do a much better job of why is this an attractive industry you know hiring people in six months later six months later laying them off because there's a downturn in the industry, as a young person, that doesn't, I don't find that very attractive to me as a career path. Um, So I think you have to provide, you know, more, you have to provide an opportunity to people. For me, why can I have a career that one, I enjoy, and two, I can actually make money at. If I'm gonna be laid off in six months in a year, I need to pay bills. Uh, So I think that's one of the things that a lot of people um, Things that a lot of people in the mining industry tend to forget. I think that's just common that we lay off people all the time. But as I said, as someone who was quite young, um, I'm not sure I, I would even look at the mining industry. Yeah. I probably, I probably, if I didn't grow up with mining, I probably never would have got into it.
0: Well, do you think that storyline, especially on like the precious metals side of the thing, that's you know. It, the, There's always that, you know, gold and silver are an insurance against inflation or, you know, bad times in the economy or the, you know, if the dollar ceases to exist. Right. Do you think that storyline works anymore with our generation? Do you think people would buy it?
1: I do think gold definitely does have a part in a portfolio. Obviously, it will differ based on the individual. Um, You know... You know, there was actually, and I I hate to keep uh, going back to it, but actually, in Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders this year, he actually talked a lot about gold. And he said, you know, if anyone was to tell you that the U.S. government debt was going to go up by 4,000% over the next 40 years, and that the U.S. dollar was going to drop in value by 80%, would you buy the Dow, or would you buy gold? So he said, if you took $100, invested it in the Dow, you'd now be worth $630,000. You would invest it in gold, it'd be $4200. So what was the better hedge against inflation and uh, the devaluation of the currency? It was actually the Dow Jones versus the, the gold price. However, gold is money. That's how I view it. Gold is a currency, and as a currency, it does its job. So if you, I have a lot of experience working in Argentina. The local currency just got wiped out. So, if you had eighty percent of your assets or fifty in the Argentinian peso, you you're you're poor. If you had it in gold, or if you're in Venezuela, gold acts as money, uh, and I think that's where gold gold's role really you know, is. It an investment per se for me. No, for me, it's money.
0: Okay. okay. Do you have that similar conversation, uh, you know, with family and friends of? Younger in nature and do they listen to you and and you know not well, take what you're saying for granted?
1: Well, yeah because It's interesting because um, I, I go to a you know, if I s- do a speaking engagement You know usually what I say is you know for the last four and a half years. I take all of my uh, All of my compensation I reinvest it back into Abitibi royalties and I remember often the comment I get is well How do you do that do you do you live in your parents basement? And I said no I bought a number of dividend-paying stocks that are outside of Abitibi and I live on the dividends. And so I think you know you can structure a portfolio that is realistic, that are good companies, um, and you know you can you can go, but you can secure your financial future if you understand how to invest correctly. And I think most people who are young look at investing, and I think everyone's been guilty of this of not fully understanding. You think it's speculation, but time is on your side when you're young, and you need time to make know uh, good gains but they don't come overnight and to try to predict where the gold price or the stock market is going to go is quite foolish
0: Do you mind if I ask you how much money you put back into your company in 2018
1: yeah so probably
0: would have been about two million. Oh wow so it's definitely one of those Rob McEwen plays you
1: yeah I told Rob when I started I don't have enough money like he does to buy 25% but I have just enough that I can forgo a salary and re- I don't forgo it, but I can take it all and reinvest it back into Apps. So if you look at my insider trading reports, um, I'm almost buying every single week in the market.
0: Okay. Very good. Uh, I, one last question. I have to ask you, what are some thoughts on these current and recent mega mergers happening amongst the major gold producers? Yep. Um, I'm just really curious, because you've got a history with Gold Corp. Do you think your time at Gold Corp, they would have even considered such a move with Newmont?
1: You have to consider it. Um, but is it good for shareholders? I would say no. I, I don't think these deals are good for or some aspects of the deals I do like. The no premium uh, combinations. I think, because why should, why should a deal just be good for one set of shareholders? Why shouldn't it be good for both sets of shareholders? So the barrick Wrangle no premium, I think I agree with that. Um, but I don't know how you can focus when you have that many mines. Um, it seems like a lot of stuff will fall through the cracks versus if you have one mine or two mines, you have a much more narrow focus. You, you know, you can look at opportunities that are in the district, but you're managing 10, when you you're a your company of that size, you tend to focus on the problem areas of the company and your time gets diluted and then your high return assets get neglected and eventually they'll start performing poorly. Um, So, you know, do I think doing a joint venture in Nevada between Barrick and Newmont makes sense? Yes, I do. Um, But these mergers of size, you know, we've we've gone through this process once before. You know, Barrick was producing 8 million ounces a number of years ago and couldn't sustain it. So what makes you think you're going to do it a second time?
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, on the Goldcorp side, when the news with Newmont was announced, it was it was just interesting. I know people would say what I'm, what I'm about to say. People might say, "Well, you're comparing apples to oranges," but there was a time when Goldcorp was traded at over fifty dollars a share, right? And when the Newmont merger was announced, they maybe that day popped up to nine dollars and fifty cents, right? And I'm just thinking,
1: well, you remember when we were at Goldcorp, we had essentially one mine. Yeah. And we did everything you could to maximize the value of that asset.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I just think it'd be like if you were a long-time shareholder through those changes and transformations <laughs> in the company. I I just feel like they'd be really upset. If you're a shareholder. Yeah. Yeah, because you probably should have just owned a bar of gold. Yeah.
1: Doesn't take a, doesn't take a salary. It can't dilute you. And uh, I'm giving a talk tomorrow at the PDAC that says. Uh, uh, we should start believing in our own assets and uh, when Barrick started, when Barrick was a one mine company from 86 to 92, now they had a great discovery, they went up by 4200 percent. When they bought Lack Minerals in 92 and then went on the acquisition spree they went down by 50 percent from 92 to present. Gold prices are up 250 percent during that time period. Mm-hmm. So. And there were Peter Monk saying at an annual meeting in 92, I should have put my feet on my desk and done nothing for the next 20 years, and I'd have a higher share price today. Yeah. He says I'm not wired that way. Yeah. So, but sometimes the best deal you do is one that you actually don't do.
0: Yeah. So big isn't always the best, right? Especially not in mining. Yeah. Ian, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. That's Ian Ball. He's the CEO of Abitibi Royalty, which is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture with RZZ and also on the NASDAQ International with ATBYF. Mining Stock Daily's affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein.